Welcome to The Blast Zone, a podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, it's a 140-minute Viking epic with Bjork in it, and it's still somehow Robert Eggers' most accessible film. This is The Northman. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like The Northman, which we're talking about today. But first, Ian, how are you doing this week? I'm holding myself accountable. I got busy this week. I got stressed. I stopped doing the daily walking that I had bragged about so proudly in the last two episodes. So here I am today, standing up publicly promising that I will start again. And it's back to baby steps for me. Excellent. It's good to hold yourself accountable to our many listeners. Yes. The next time we record and you don't get an update from me and that he's been out walking, feel free to at him on Twitter and yell at him. Don't at me, bro. Is that how the saying goes? <laughs> sure. Okay. Why not? Yeah, I did not go for a walk today, but that's because it is three degrees outside right now Yikes. where I live. Yeah. I had to mark myself fine when I logged into my computer, apparently. <laughs> that is so few degrees. That is almost no degrees. It's not enough degrees. And I think with the wind chill they're saying it feels like negative 15 or 20 you were the northman today i feel like the northman although i will not be running around in a loincloth <laughs> i did wear shorts to the gym and my wife was very concerned uh -oh. like, you gotta put sweatpants on I was, i'm just going for my car to the door it's right there and I, I lived but i was cold you don't want your knees to lock up on the way back to the car so that's what i'm dealing with but i'm leaving one frozen tundra and uh, traveling to another tomorrow i fly to denmark wow for a week you know this starts to sound like a whole stunt that you concocted to tie into our northman episode but i think it's a little more than that. Listen, and, and where am I going in May that I told you about? Uh, Kalispell, Montana, where they filmed another famous movie we may be covering around that time. Ooh. I'm really putting the extra effort for the podcast. I'm traveling to all the real world locations. Getting on the ground. That yeah. is really exciting. I hope you have a lot of fun in Denmark. I'm excited. I'm traveling with our friend Jeff, who was on the Final Fantasy Spirits Within pod. Yes. Uh, so I have a traveling companion. Love It'll Jeff. be a good time. Aside from that, Ian, let me stop talking about myself. Why don't you talk about yourself? What did you happen to watch this week that you wanted to share with the listeners? I dug into the can of the Coen brothers, which I knew I was a pretty big fan of, but I hadn't seen all their movies. So I pulled up Hail Caesar from 2016. A lost one, maybe, although it wasn't a flop. I looked it up. It seemed to have made some money. If you haven't seen this one, it's set at a movie studio in 1951. It's kind of a loving tribute to old Hollywood. You know, it's set at a movie studio, so it's got movies within movies being produced on this lot. But it invests a lot of time and effort in actually staging the musical numbers from these 50s style musicals in their full glory. And they're beautiful and they're sung and danced amazingly by people like Channing Tatum in a really cool cameo role. It's a coen -y movie and that it focuses on a particularly driven man at the center of the story. But then it veers away a little bit from some of their harshness, which I associate them with. There is some criminal mayhem in the center of the movie, and there are hapless characters who wander into the middle of the mayhem, as happens in Coen Brothers movies. But usually it fucks those people up, right? Like they get chewed up in some really horrifying way. And this movie is a little softer on them without spoiling the plot of the movie. I'll just say it's a little nicer to its hapless idiots in trouble. And it has great performances. Josh Brolin's great in it. Clooney is 
is super fun. Alden Ehrenreich. Who, yeah, the young Han Solo. He's better in this movie. He is, plays a really fun role in this. And there's a ton of other Coen Brothers regulars who show up in many of their movies. It was really good. I liked it. Yeah, I'm an Alden Ehrenreich. I wouldn't say fan. I don't think he's done enough for me to, right. to be a fan, but I root for him in some way. He's going to be in Cocaine Baron Oppenheimer, so all is not oh, lost yeah. for him. No, it's a good year for him, sounds like. It's on the comeback trail. I'm a Coen Brothers fan as well. Certainly not a completist by any means, but I also haven't seen Hail Caesar, so you oh, may yeah. have motivated me to check it out. I was just looking up the movies they've done. This was their second to last movie as a duo, and it's bookmarked by Inside Lewin Davis and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, both of which I was big fan of, so I can't imagine oh, yeah. that. I was just like in true grit right by. I don't know if this is a hot take, but the Coen Brothers sure have made some good movies. <laughs> They're kind of good at making movies. Who knew? I don't know, man. Somebody yeah. should talk about this on podcasts more. I mean, two white guys <laughs> talk about the Coen Brothers. That's what we need. That's us. That's awesome. I think I'll dig into Hail Caesar when I have some time and check it out. I think you'll like it. So I can't talk about The Last of Us because I talked about The Last of Us three weeks ago. Yeah. But we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that excellent hour and 20 minutes of television they put out last week called Long, Long Time. Yeah. Starring Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett. I was so moved by that episode of television and it got me kind of like pining for some post-apocalyptic fiction that's a little less doom and gloom and has some other elements to it. As much as I love the zombie riff, doom and gloom, humans are the real monsters, post-apocalyptic playbook that we all know so well. I was tempted to revisit a show I know we both started and neither of us finished back when it first debuted, Station Eleven. Yes. How was it? I think you got further into it the first time around than I did. I think I only got two episodes in. Okay. And I liked it, but it just didn't didn't hook me like those things sometimes do. And I kind of gave up on it. It was a little dense. That was my feeling. I was like, it took a lot of work to watch it. And we don't always have that energy to perform that emotional labor. It didn't let up on that. It stayed dense. It requires your full attention, but it rewards you for it too. And I, I must have watched the whole series in three days. Granted, it's not a very long series. It's 10 episodes and they range from like 40 minutes to just under an hour, which is most welcome. Yes. Um, I love that about it. I love a supersized episode, but my bedtime doesn't. So <laughs> it was nice to be able to kind of finish. Sometimes you'll check and you'd be like, there's 40 minutes left. Am I going to finish this episode or am I just going to yeah. go to bed? But when there's like 12 minutes left, you're like, all right, I'll stick around. I know you're thinking about diving back into it, so I don't want to spoil anything, but the play Hamlet plays a big part at the end of Station Eleven, play a big part in all of Station Eleven, but Hamlet is kind of the climactic play. Okay. And do you know what the story of Hamlet was based on? I have an inkling. The Norse legend of Amleth, who is the protagonist of a little movie called The Northman, which we're going to be talking about today. Woo-hoo! Very strong tie-in. Very nicely done. Nailed it. We have no justified crossover of the week this week, so I had to find somewhere to crossover. Shakespearean crossover of the week. Ian, we I think we talked about The Northman like when it was coming out because we were doing this podcast and we were both excited about it. But what was your introduction to The Northman? What was your first impressions of it? How excited were you to see it? Did it live up to your expectations? I was very eager to see it when it was in production because... Very eager to see it, you might oh, say. <laughs> yikes. Watch out, folks. A lot of puns today. I had watched The Lighthouse. That's where was my entry point for Eggers. And I fell in love with that movie immediately. I was scared of it when I didn't know what it was. And then I watched it and I was absolutely in love with it. And that got me over my fear of watching The Witch. And I watched that and I absolutely loved that. And so all that happened while this movie was in production. I was super excited to see it. And I didn't go to the theater. Not a ton of people did, obviously. But I watched it as quick as I could when it became available digitally. And I liked it. But at the same time, it didn't quite live up to my Egger expectations, you might say. <laughs> as high as they were. So revisiting it this week was an exercise in trying to evaluate how does it stand on its own versus being 
Eggers fanboy and going into this movie and finding it's different in some key ways. I didn't actually see it until we started prepping for the podcast because it became so obvious soon after it was released that it was going to be on the podcast because it was pretty clear it was going to bomb. And how do we not talk about Robert Eggers movie on the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> but I was left a little cold by it, surprisingly. And I think if I had to summarize my feelings on it, it's like too weird to work as a pure action revenge fantasy blockbuster type deal. And it's too mainstream and by the books to work as like a weird Eggers fever dream. Yeah. No one's happy with it at the end is my take. And I know it has its fans. Shout out to the homies at the Silver Screen Video Podcast. Certainly a movie that I enjoyed, but it is by far my least favorite of the three Robert Eggers movies. And it's yeah, not one I expect I'll revisit anytime soon. Interesting. I wonder if it'll lure you back in over time. I had warmer feelings each time I watched it, but I did come up with a quick, if I can launch into this episode with my quick version of the theory of why this one disappoints compared to the other Eggers or why it stands out even. Sure. The other two Eggers movies were so unique. The settings and the setups were pretty unique. And also just like, you didn't know what the story was. So there was a lot of tension and a lot of like, what the fuck is going to happen in this movie? And this movie, The Northman, is kind of the opposite of that. This movie loves to tell you what is going to happen. In fact, it goes to great pains to keep repeating, you're destined to do this and this is the only thing you can do and you haven't been doing it yet, so you better start doing that thing. It sounds cooler when Bjork says it or Willem Dafoe. They give it more style than I do, but that's one thing. So it's like this movie lays it all out there and doesn't have you scratching your head like the other Eggers movies did. And then I also thought about the themes. The other movies were super relatable. The Witches seems like a horror movie, but to me it was like a family drama about how difficult life is as a teenager when your parents don't understand you and you have super annoying younger siblings. And then Lighthouse is really relatable because it's about work, life, and extreme boredom and hopelessness. And this movie, The Northman, is like, yeah, don't you hate it when your uncle kills your dad and you spend your whole life trying to live that down? Like, it's not nearly as relatable. Then you make out with your mom for some reason? <laughs> yeah. That checks out. It's a very shockingly standardized revenge story. You yeah. Know? Like, all the beats are so obvious. And it's not like it's trying to subvert these tropes and failing. It just want, It's trying to tell a very straightforward story. It's just, you're left a little confused. I'm like, that's it? I know what you mean. That's definitely one of the feelings you might have. You want me to get into the making of the movie a little bit? It wasn't like a really up and down production, except for one pretty big snag it hit along the way, which you guys can probably guess given the time frame. Yeah. To hear how this happened will hopefully explain why we got this movie out of Robert Eggers. All right. Alexander Skarsgård really wanted to portray a Viking. Born in Sweden, Skarsgård developed a fascination with Viking legends and culture from a young age, and as luck would have it, he ended up being 6'4", blonde, and heavily muscled. Once he was established as a successful actor, he started seeking out his dream project. In 2011, he had been attached to a Warner Brothers Viking epic with the working title of The Vanguard, but the film never made it out of the development stage. Meanwhile, Robert Eggers was busy making his own name in Hollywood, with his 2015 horror film The Witch becoming a surprise box office hit and garnering rave reviews. Wouldst thou like to live certified freshly? Eggers took a trip to Iceland in 2016 and met Bjork, which is actually required before entering the country. Bjork introduced Eggers to Icelandic poet slash musician slash screenwriter Sean, and the two became friendly. In 2017, Skarsgård would meet Eggers and the two would begin dreaming up some potential projects to collaborate on. Skarsgård mentioned he wanted to make a Viking film and Eggers knew just the guy to help him write it. Eggers reached out to Sean and the two began working on a screenplay primarily based on the legend of Amleth, which was also the inspiration 
inspiration for Hamlet. Hamlet and Eggers? That's a tasty combo. Eggers would go on to make The Lighthouse, which received rave reviews but had a more muted commercial reception than The Witch, and then got to work on The Northman. The $65 million budget was six times what Eggers was working with on The Lighthouse, and he assembled a star-studded cast of Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Willem Dafoe, Anya Taylor-Joy, Bill Skarsgård, Ethan Hawke, and Clay Spang. Plus, Bjork came along, too. Bill Skarsgård would have to drop out of the film in September 2020 due to scheduling conflicts and was replaced by Gustav Lind. Filming was set to take place in Northern Ireland during March 2020, but COVID-19 had other plans. The film was delayed, with filming not starting until August of 2020 and wrapping up in December of the same year. The delays and some reshoots ballooned the film's budget to $90 million, and early test screenings were not well received, with many viewers complaining about the first act being too slow and the Old Norse dialogue being difficult to understand. Can you make the Norse sound a little bit younger? Thanks. Much of it was redone in ADR, and the final cut of the film was approved on November 3rd, 2021. A release date of April 8th, 2022 was set, but later pushed back to April 22nd. Reviews were overwhelmingly positive, as the movie holds an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, but audiences didn't turn out for the movie. It opened in fourth place with a respectable $12.3 million, but it had to share an audience with Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal action comedy, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. That's an intolerable burden. It would drop to only $6.4 million in its second week, and $2.9 million in its third. The writing was on the wall now that the Northman would be a box office bomb, but the film has many defenders and performed quite well on VOD once it was made available there. So it's kind of a happy ending for yeah. a movie that we're going to end up feeling somewhat positive about. It's nice to know it didn't ruin Robert Eggers because we definitely want to see him do his next thing and then who knows what else. But Nosferatu is up on deck, right? Nosferatu and a miniseries about Rasputin. Wow. This guy will never make a movie set in the in the present day. <laughs> Although he's actually given, he's said that he never wants to. He's like the Orlando Bloom pre-Elizabethtown of directors. <laughs> yeah. The guy just loves immersing himself in historical specifics, which he did like a madman in this. And you could say that sometimes the historical specifics crowd out the human emotion in this movie. And that's maybe one of the criticisms we might level at it. What a way to walk around a criticism. <laughs> you, you might say that this, and perhaps that is one of the ways in which we'll criticize this movie. No, I think you, you nailed it. Say it with your chest. Let me back to what you just brought up in the monologue there, though. Un Unbearable weight of massive talent. Really great movie. Funny movie. Did that make any money? Or did they just both sink each other? No, that was that we almost covered that this week. Oh, OK. Um, yeah. Unbearable weight of like they, it was mutually assured destruction between the two yeah. of them, unfortunately. Because I, I did see Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent in theaters. That was kind of, oh, I remember, yeah. I talked about it on the pod. I was with my friend Steve and we were like, we definitely want to go see a movie. Do we have time to see two movies? And we had other plans at night. So we were like, oh, we got to pick one. I was like, fuck it. Let's do the lighthearted Nicolas Cage yeah. and Pedro Pascal action comedy. You picked a good one. That's a party movie. That's fun. It was super fun, but I always regretted not seeing The Northman in theaters. But that, that's direct anecdotal evidence to support the theory. Yeah, totally. That these two R-rated movies kind of aimed at male audiences in my age group drop on the same day, especially when, I don't know, the market wasn't really crowded around that time. Like movies aren't dropping three or four a week anymore like they did pre-pandemic times. So I find it hard to believe you couldn't find another weekend for at least one of the two. Give them a shot. That's a good question. Who knows? The theatrical business was so mixed up, I think, still at that time last year where everything seemed like hit or miss, right? Yeah. Some of the big ones that people thought for sure would go big just totally fizzled and other things took in a lot of money that I'm like, who is going out to see this stuff? It's a mixed up crazy business. This one got chewed up, but it's kind of tailor-made for streaming. Anya tailor-made. Oh. It's Anya tailor-made. It's a joy to stream this movie. And I guess audiences agreed. 
And so now like Eggers is like, no, we made the money back. Don't cry for us. I'm almost relieved I didn't watch this in theaters because if I watched it in theaters, there's a 100% chance I would have smoked a big fat joint first. And I don't know if I would have been able to tolerate this movie high, like really (laughs) high with all the big sounds and psychedelic scenes in this movie. It's intense. It's hard to decipher a lot of what's being said in this movie, despite the fact, like you said, they re-recorded some stuff to try to help audiences out. It's hard to see a lot. So warning to anybody who listens to us and is like, I haven't watched it. Maybe I'm going to try. Turn all your lights out. Don't leave any lights on in your room or you just won't see this movie because it's real dark. They didn't have light bulbs back then. Only natural lighting. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) Something tells me they did not use only natural lighting, but it sure fucking looks like it sometimes. It gives you that experience. It's cool though. It looks great. It's a very visually striking film, but there's a couple things about the visuals that I'm not in love with, but I feel like they work better in the context of talking about the story. So maybe we should get started. Should we jump in? Let's do it. It is the year 895. I didn't prepare for how you say 895. Did you just say 895? It is the year year 895. (laughs) It is the year 895. And Amleth is a young Viking prince. His dad, King Orvandil, played by Ethan Hawke, has just gotten back from war. And he bonds with Amleth in a spiritual ceremony led by the king's jester, Hamir, played by Willem Dafoe. Suddenly, there's an ambush. Orvandil's brother, Fjolnir, played by Clace Bang, kills the king, claiming his throne and carrying off his queen, Gudrun, played by Nicole Kidman. Young Amleth barely escapes with his life, but he swears revenge, vowing one day to kill Fjolnir and free his mom. Years later, we meet the grown-up Amleth, played by Alexander Skarsgård, now a ferocious berserker warrior, part of a band of Vikings raiding river towns in the land of Rus. In one such village, Amleth meets a seeress, played by Bjork, who reminds him that his destiny is to carry out his promised revenge. And when he hears that a boatload of captive villagers are being shipped off to Iceland to become slaves of a relocated king named Fjolnir, he sees his chance. Amleth disguises himself as a slave and stows away on the boat to Iceland to seek a bloody reunion with his treacherous uncle. You know what's crazy is that Bjork wasn't even cast in the movie. She was just there. And that's what she was wearing. And that's just like, they didn't give her a script. She just said that stuff. <laughs> it's just like, what's up, Bjork? And she's like, you must fulfill your destiny. <laughs> oh, Bjork. I never I never get tired of her. Say that again, Bjork. We missed focus. For oh, we didn't even have you mic'd up. Yeah, can you? No. Bjork uh, making her return to acting after quite a long time away. I think she had a really poor experience on Dancer in the Dark and said she didn't want to act anymore. Oh. It was Lars Van Trier. Yeah, I never saw that. I heard that she was very impressive in that and that people regretted that she didn't continue to act. Yeah, I mean, she was very impressive in it. It's a great performance, but I think if you know anything about Lars von Trier, he's not okay. the most easy gentleman to work with or for, certainly. Yeah. So I think he put her off acting, but Robert Eggers seems a much more agreeable sort with his actors, at least. People tend to like him. Yeah, he seems like a really chill dude for a guy who makes really weird, dark movies. He seems really cool, just kind of mellow and just like kind of really into his shit. Really into his shit. Man <laughs> hired an Icelandic poet to co-write his screenplay. Yeah. Uh, but then the guy wrote all this cool lyrical dialogue and the audiences were like, really? don't like it. It's a tough sell, man. It's almost a no-win situation unless you really Hollywoodize what you picked up. And obviously he was never going to do that. So he kind of half did it. And it, like you said, it kind of maybe doesn't satisfy anybody. We were talking about kind of the visuals of this movie. And your first note here I wanted to talk about because I think it ties into what we were saying really well. Mm-hmm. There's some impressive visuals and some beautiful scenic stuff that tends to happen in the second half of the movie. The first half is kind of dark and it's kind of dreary. This kingdom of Orvindil, it's pretty humble. He comes marching up this little muddy dirt 
road. Everybody's dirty as hell. They go into the great hall. It's super dark and murky in there, smoky and dark, and you can't see shit. It's like an it's an okay hall. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's not the greatest hall you've ever been in. It feels authentic, but like we started to say, it's also hard to pick up the details of what's going on. Just recognizing people, figuring out what they're saying, all that is a challenge. And I think you're kind of bumping up against one of the oldest lessons people learned when they were trying to make historically accurate movies is that like accuracy isn't always very cinematic. The stuff doesn't really pop on screen. It might be what these halls and these kind of villages really looked like, but that doesn't make it appealing to the eye. And if you hear anything about this movie from Robert Eggers is that he was so concerned with accuracy. He compromised almost nothing in terms of the choices of every bit of clothing, serving utensils, every little thing was like, that's the way the Vikings really did it. So I guess it's rewarding once you know that, that you're like, oh, I'm actually getting a feel for this place, but it can leave you kind of cold. That's probably something we'll say over and over in this episode. Looked pretty cold there. (laughs) So the burden ends up being on people like Ethan Hawke, who's kind of the star of this first sequence, right? The king comes home and everyone's like, oh, the king, the king. I think he actually carries that pretty well. He's ominous and scary. This is the Viking king just come back from war and everyone bows down to him. And then he shows this loving side to him because he's actually a pretty sweet dad to young Amleth. How do you like Ethan Hawke in the movie? I'm a big Ethan Hawke fan as far as just overall. I had a hard time picturing him as a Viking king because I think Ethan Hawke's like 5'7". But they do a good job of kind of camera trickery here to make him seem size appropriate next to Clay Spang, who's like a full-fledged warrior. Okay, yeah. Uh, But he does strike a nice balance of warmth. But I didn't necessarily get the first part of it, of the ominous ruler. I think he seemed a little weak, even in his scenes with his subjects more so than just his son. I never got the vibe from him that he was really like ruled with an iron fist type guy, which is probably why he was so open to being usurped. That's a good point. Maybe ominous isn't the right word. He's enigmatic. He's just sort of quiet and steely at first. But then there's a scene where Heimer is is almost insulting during the reception at the Great Hall and Fjolnir wants to just kill him right there and Orvindale has to step in and calm everyone down. But depending on your perspective there, that could be showing that, oh, he's level-headed. He's not quick to anger. He can stay calm or he's ineffectual and suffers insults to his family. That's true. Willem Dafoe is this funny royal jester who's good buds with the king, but he says the shit that no one else will say. As great comics believe that is their job to do. You gotta push the boundaries. <laughs> he's edgy as fuck and he insults Fjolnir and Fjolnir shows that he's hot tempered and I guess Orvindil shows that he's above all that. But yeah, he could also just be a little bit weak and allowing some nonsense to go on in his court. Fjolnir's about that action. You get the vibe right off the bat that he's not fucking around. No, he's mad. All you get from him is that he's pissed. He just got home from war with his brother and he goes off. He's got other business to take care of. He comes in late. He's angry at everybody. He's just not happy, dude. He's not jovial, let's say. He's more of the strong, angry type. Not even silent because he's not silent. He yells a lot. And there's not a lot of jovial stuff in this movie except in this next scene, which gets weird and funny at the same time. Ethan Hawke goes from his kingly stuff to like, actually, I got to spend some time with my son. I got hurt in the war and I just realized I've got to take him through the coming of age ceremony in case something happens to me. And the coming of age ceremony is tripping balls in a sweat lodge? (laughs) Yeah. With Willem Dafoe? (laughs) Yeah, Willem Dafoe's other job, besides being the court jester, is being a weird shaman who gives you the mushrooms. He makes you act like a dog and eat it out of a dog bowl. And then you start making fart jokes. And uh, it's the strangest this movie gets, really. 
Yes, it is a very surreal sequence. Actually, once the drugs take hold, to quote Hunter S. Thompson, and uh, they're fully <laughs> tripping balls, I think he pulls out a fish CD at some point and puts it on for them. Yeah, that was Check tricky. out this seven-minute seven guitar solo. And you pointed this out. I'm going to keep giving you credit because you, you were way more on the ball with this type of stuff. But it spells out almost the entire movie in a lot of ways. It's doing a lot of like foretelling about yeah. where the movie's going to take you. And I just, honestly, I watched this movie back when it came to streaming, and then I watched it twice this week, and I really didn't get all of it until the last watch. There's so much setup in this scene. Everything that causes the rest of the movie to happen happens here. Amleth swears he protect his family and his bloodline at all costs. He sheds his final tear, which then turns into a little crystal. And Hamer tells him this is going to come back to you later to remind you of your duty. And it does, of course, because everything they say comes true. It introduces <laughs> us to this concept of the Tree of Kings, where all of Arvindil's bloodline is hanging on this tree made out of big blood vessels. And it's part of the trippiness. But like all of it comes back around later. Yeah. The tree of kings is very, you already used the word trippy, but I can't think of a better, <laughs> I know we're gonna a better way to explain that. it. So then they, after the sweat lodge, we get the big ambush. Fjolnir has taken out Orvindale. He has ordered Amleth to be killed as well. Sends out his henchmen to do it, but spoiler alert, they can't quite pull it off. One of the guys, he might have a name. It's not important. The nose guy. The nose guy climbs on top of Amleth. He's ready to kill him and boom, gets his nose sliced clean off in a pretty gnarly shot. Although it's, again, if you didn't have your lights out when you were watching it, you'd be hard pressed to figure out what the fuck is going on. This is a Jake Giddis times 1,000. He got his nose sliced a little bit, but he covered it with a Band-Aid. This guy was cut pretty much like ruined the rest of his days. What do you do if you get like a stuffy nose in that situation? Oh, man. This guy blows his nose on somebody later on and it just shoots right out of the front of his face. Cool. <laughs> so I guess that's what you do. <laughs> Eggers is gross. That's one thing I don't think gets discussed enough is how gross he is. <laughs> he's like, He loves he's, bodily humor. Yeah, like, he's, will, he's willing to go there. This is one of the scenes in the movie where you see one of Eggers' long tracking shots he loves to do these action sequences as one long shot. And we follow Amleth as he's fleeing from the bad guys and he's climbing under buildings. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I did this whole exact sequence when I played Skyrim. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do. I do remember that. I did get some Skyrim vibes from certain parts of the movie. Yeah. But that makes sense. It totally makes sense. But but that's not the biggest tracking shot in this movie. No, there's an even bigger one. He really front loaded this movie with the fancy tracking shots because then Amleth, we flash forward to him. How many years? 20 years later? It's something like that. 15, 20 years must be. And he's a full grown, and I do mean full grown, <laughs> he's fucking grown. huge, Viking berserker laying waste to these Slavic villages in most impressive fashion. Apparently the shot took 25 takes to get, which has got to be exhausting for poor Alex. Yeah, this is this crazy long scene that goes from outside the village. He catches a spear, he throws it back. You see that in the trailer. They climb the wall, just him and all his dudes murder their way through this whole village. And it's not my favorite part of the movie. It seems to be the part, like every interview and thing that I found online talks about this sequence and how hard it was and how much effort went into getting it just right and one continuous take. But then I thought about it. I'm like, this is just exposition. We're just learning about the world and we're finding out who Amleth grew up to be. But nothing of consequence happens during this fight. The stuff that actually moves the plot forward happens the night after. That's true. I was going to say, doesn't this bring him to Olga? But not really. I mean, it's That's where he ends up in the village. But like the actual battle doesn't have any impact on that. Yeah. The battle is just to show us how brutal these Vikings are and what kind of man that Amleth has become. You've got to do something to create that exposition. And certainly better than talking us through it is to show us the whole thing. But it's a lot of effort. And it, like many things in this movie, it can leave you a little hollow because you're like, oh, he didn't care about anything. He didn't try for anything in that scene or get it or fail to get it or anything. He just rampaged his way through this town. And then you see him breathing heavy at the end of it. I think if it was a more like mainstream standard approach to this genre, we would have gotten like a montage of him, like maybe 15 years old yeah. fighting and then like gradually becoming more and more 
vicious and desensitized. But here they're just kind of fast forwarding to the end point, but giving us like a big chunk of it. Which is not bad. I'm not saying it like he fucked up with this, but uh, it's a lot of effort for a small payoff in story terms. Doesn't have a huge impact on moving the plot forward. So then he meets that night after the town is sacked. There's one little temple that they didn't burn to the ground and Bjork is in there and she's some kind of seer, seeress. They call her the seeress. That's how she's credited. It's an impossible word to say on a podcast. Very tough. But like you said, the day she showed up for set, she was dressed in style because I love her art direction. She's in this really cool, funky temple and she has this sort of crown, this fan of wheat stalks on her head and it's this sort of Slavic uh, iconography. I'm sure that it relates to something real because they related everything to something real. Because Eggers was so exhaustive, yeah. So just looking at her is cool. It was one of my favorite looks in the movie. Yes, because they, they kind of, everyone else is relatively grounded in like their, their get-ups. It all seems period appropriate, but like we said, that's not always the most cinematic. It all seems very practical, but it's a little droll. It's a little colorless, a little drab. And then Bjork's there just like peacocking like nobody's <laughs> business. She's, yeah. She's got her fanciest get-up on and it does kind of like snap you out of maybe the little bit of a lull you were feeling. Yeah, because she may not be entirely real. She's playing this character who is dressed in this style that's appropriate for the people of that region, right? This is the land of Rus. This is what's current day Ukraine. These are Slavic peoples and her stuff looks like that. But yet she's spinning some yarn and she has no eyes. So she is theoretically representing the Norns, which are referenced in the Norse part of the mythology of this movie as the women who spin out your fate. And that's why Amleth is destined to do what he's destined to do. So she's like the Slavic Norn or she's somehow embodying. It's kind of hard to make sense of it all. It looks cool. I commend you for even trying. Thank you. I probably shouldn't have tried. I just wasted five minutes trying to talk about myths that I don't know shit about. It was well explained. I, I was following you. It's just I didn't put any of that together. I was watching this from a much more, oh, cool, it's Bjork. That was yeah. my whole, the beginning and end of it for me. She's cool. But like we said, Willem Dafoe spent a long time in that first sequence telling Amleth what he's going to do with his life. And then he's become a berserker. And Bjork steps in and is like, remember what Willem Dafoe told you you're supposed to do with your life? You forgot to do that. It's time to start doing that. And she hands him back the tear that he cried. And Willem Dafoe turned into a crystal. And somehow she's got it. She gives it back to him. She's like, time to start killing people. <laughs> Actually, he's been killing people. She's like, it's time right. to start killing specific members of your family. Let's right. get it together. In a way, she's kind of like his guidance counselor. You she know? is, yeah. You've been kind of just aimlessly floating around. <laughs> you really got to pick a major. And your major <laughs> is killing your uncle. It's uncle time. So then we're off to Iceland. And yeah, so before we get off, that takes us into the next segment of the movie. I just wanted to note that I kind of love that one of Amleth's special skills as a hero is the breaststroke. He fucking kicks ass as a breaststroke swimmer and he gets to do it multiple times in the movie. Well, Skarsgård kind of has the perfect like swimmer's build, right? Yes. Tall, he's long, he's like thin but muscular. Sorry if it sounds like I'm thirsting over Alexander <laughs> Skarsgård. Can you blame me? He looks like a broad-shouldered Olympian. I could totally, like if he never made it as an actor, I could totally see him competing in the Olympics. Totally. All right. You want me to walk you through the middle part of the movie here? Yeah, let's hear what happens next. Now working as a slave on Fjolnir's Icelandic farm, Amleth confides his dark secret to a self-proclaimed sorceress named Olga, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who agrees to help him plot his revenge. One day during a violent Viking sports ball game, Amleth saves his young half-brother Gunnar from bodily harm. This earns him a promotion to a foreman role and the chance to select Olga as his mate. Then Amleth meets a he-witch who channels the dead jester Heimer, who tells him to go retrieve an enchanted sword from an old burial mound. Armed with the sword, Amleth begins to sneak out at night and murder Fjolnir's men, striking fear into the whole community. Amleth's reign of terror reaches a fever pitch when Olga spikes everyone's stew with hallucinogenic mushroom. In the mad confusion that follows, Amleth sneaks into the main house to reveal 
his true identity to his mother. But Amleth is shocked to find out Gudrun does not want to be rescued. She tells him she loves Fjolnir and she hated Arvindil, who originally took her as a slave bride and impregnated her with Amleth against her will. Furious at the news, Amleth leaves, stopping only to cut the heart out of Fjolnir's adult son, Thorir. He's like, I gotta go, but I just can't leave without cutting my stepbrother's heart out. <laughs> One for the road. Pretty gnarly. There's yeah. a lot of gnarly stuff in this. This is a sequence where the revenge starts to happen. And so if you thought it was gnarly the way he was mowing down the Slavs, wait till he gets to his own family, his uncle's man. It's right, because he, he was killing them in like the midst of battle. Now he's almost assassinating them. So he has a little more time to get creative and a little more grisly. Yes, because he doesn't just go to get his uncle right away and cut his throat. He's like, let me first terrorize the fuck out of this community. And he, the first night, he chops two guys into pieces and reassembles them into kind of a horse and pins them to the wall of a barn. It's it's really brutal. It took me, <laughs> I had to rewind that to figure <laughs> out what exactly that was going on there. I was just like, huh. What's I, don't, a, I still don't know what it was yeah. I saw, but it's fucking horrific. It's the best explanation I could think of. Yeah. It's kind of like centaur shaped because he chopped their torsos and arms and legs and put them back together in this funny way. It's taking him hours. He's very creative. He has more than just revenge in him. Could have been a sculptor. Yeah, he's kind of crafty that way. He's got some real vision, his art. Let's talk about the look because we said the first kingdom that Orvindil is in charge of, pretty muddy and gloomy. Now they're in Iceland, which is Northern Ireland is mostly standing in for Iceland on the farm here. It looks great. There's a bunch of majestic scenic shots from a helicopter and just even the sort of farm life. It looks really nice there. That's actually just the farm from the Princess Bride, but in winter. <laughs> okay. Um, it was also filmed in Northern Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. That explains it. No, it is like a really nice, they get some good landscape shots. It's it's all photographed very well. And then they go to black and white for large chunks of this section, which is interesting. Yeah, it's almost a 300-esque effect, right? Like it's very much a noticeable effect and not a naturalistic look. At night, most things are black and white and there'll be pops of color with a little bit of grass lit up by the moon or a little bit of yellow torchlight. But it gives this very dreamlike feel to the parts of the movie where Amleth is enacting his terror campaign. So it's very spooky. It's more mythical fairy tale spooky here in a way that I kind of like. Yeah, it almost feels like it switches genre from action movie to almost like a horror movie in this part. That's true. Especially like we said with the people getting chopped up in horrible bits. The discovery of the corpse, the mutilated corpses is very Jason Voorhees or my, like Michael. They were always playing pranks with dead bodies. <laughs> exactly. But, but Eggers does that shit too. There's definitely shifts in his first two movies where it goes from, like you said, family drama to horror or the lighthouse is like a workplace comedy slash <laughs> horror. Yeah. He likes to go. And it's not like the whole movie has all those elements. It's like, here's a section that's one and then here's a section that's another. He tends to kind of compartmentalize his films that way, I think. And the mythical stuff ramps up here. He starts to seeing this fox who seems to be an enchanted fox because he follows it. And that's where he meets that he witch, which we call a he witch because apparently in Viking tradition, women were in charge of certain types of sorcery, including predicting the future and speaking to the dead. And, and so shopping. They do be shopping. Or trading. <laughs> I don't know if they had money. But yeah, here's a guy who specializes in talking to the dead. So he's actually dressed in women's clothing, which I wouldn't have noticed except that I read it and then I went back and saw it. He pulls out the skull of Hamir. And in case you didn't get the Hamlet reference to Yorick, one of them says, poor Hamer. And the other guy says, alas. So like they basically put together some clues so the more dense people among us would get what they were trying there. For the high school English students, <laughs> like, hey, wait a second, something's going on here. It's fun because we get a revisit to Willem Dafoe, who you always want more of when he's playing a kooky character in a movie. And his voice inhabits this thing, kind of like the Green Goblin's voice used to come out of shit. Yeah. Like talk in your head, right? He's totally channeling Harry Osborne <laughs> here. But yeah, you're right. You never want less Dafoe. But this movie really does dial up the kind of weird fantasy shit with the forging of the mythical sword, the 
much. Just a wild sequence. I thought you would like that because that feels almost Lord of the Rings Z, right? This yeah. the, um, thing starts telling the story like you got to go get this magical sword and it was forged by the dwarves under the mountain or something. And they show some muscular dwarves pounding on some steel. That was the cool fantasy stuff, I thought. Super awesome. But like, almost felt out of place. Yeah. Eggers is kind of famous for throwing shit at you. Like when you the world might feel naturalistic and all of a sudden there's something entirely supernatural, but he kind of doesn't comment on it. There's a big one in the third act too. We're going to yeah. talk about one of my, one yeah. of my favorites. And then he goes and he fights a skeleton king in this burial mound, which is just super cool, spooky fantasy action. And I thought it was a fully like CGI thing. I'm like, there's no way that could be real. Skarsgård is 6'4 or whatever, and this creature is towering over him. But then I looked up the actor, Ian White, plays Mound Dweller. That actor, Ian White, is 7'1". So that was just like a legit, Holy like shit. practical fight between two actors. That's sick. Yeah. Is he, that's really what neat. does he do like when he's not terrorizing people in movies? Is he like a professional wrestler or a basketball uh, player? He says he's an actor. He's had speaking roles. He was in the Alien versus Predator movies. He was in Andor, actually. Oh. He was well. Vetch, which doesn't ring a bell, but I'll have, to, no. I'll have to go back and check. He's been in a lot of Star Wars stuff, actually. It seems like he always pops up in Star Wars stuff. Yeah, he's no, he's, a, he's like a working actor. He was, he was a stuntman. He's got an entry on the Wikipedia under list of tallest people. So yeah, he's super tall. <laughs> he's super tall and it works. It's a really fun action scene. And he did play basketball. Okay. For the Newcastle Eagles. Well, you know, everybody asks him. Speaking of sports, should we talk about this segment that they have here? Sure. This was just lacrosse, I think. From what I understand about lacrosse and how it used to be played, it was pretty, pretty rough. There's, yeah, equal amounts of chasing the ball and just beating each other with the sticks in this game. At first, it seemed like, okay, if you guys happen to collide or you happen to catch a guy with your stick trying to get the ball, we're not going to call a penalty or anything. But then like (laughs) later on, people are just swinging the shit at each other's heads. And I was like, oh, like you're trying to kill each other. They're just beating each other senseless to the point where the guy, and it's not clear who's, if it's all enslaved people that are playing this game or what that guy who's the world's strongest man who was on Game of Thrones. I can't, I don't know his name, but he's oh, the yeah, big Thor, bad guy in the scene. The Greg, um, good old Gregor Clegane. Yeah, exactly. He ends up being the tough guy that Amleth has to take down. And when he gets through everybody else, he's ready to smash the little eight-year-old who ran on the field. So I'm like, this game is even more brutal than I thought. I was confused to why that was a thing that could happen. Yeah. <laughs> Kids run on the pitch or on the field or whatever. When they're not supposed to, it happens. But then everyone just kind of stands back and watches as this guy is about to murder this royal child. They're like, oh, this is awful. Why is this happening? Meanwhile, they're all fucking warriors with swords at their belts. Like, yeah, nobody there's... ran after him. So it was up to Amleth to save him. And thankfully he did. I mean, yeah, it worked out for Amleth that got him into the good graces. But like, yeah. none of Fjolner's bodyguards were like, I could score some brownie points. I know he's a big dude running up on him. is probably not your top option, but there's a bunch of people there. If you had a spear, maybe you could do something about that guy. Worked for Pedro Pascal. He used a spear on him. Did he? In Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. Oh, no. I think that's where I dropped out of the show, but not- When Pedro Pascal showed up, you were like, I don't want this. Anymore. I forgot he even showed up at all. No, I must have dropped out before because obviously he's I like, wouldn't drop yeah. out on Pedro. That's my boy. He's great and it fucking rules. He kills uh, the mountain. Sorry, shit. spoilers. Now I got to go so. back to Game of Thrones to catch up on the Pedro Pascal that I missed. Just watch that. He's only in one season, so okay. just watch it. It's worth it. But uh, I mean, it was like a nice little bit of world building too to kind of show the leisure time activities of these royal Vikings. It was a case where this was, again, something real. So it's a way to work something from the actual cultural history of these people into the plot of the movie in kind of a fun way. My wife, Jamie, got me a yard game called Kub, K-U-B-B with an umlaut over the U. And it's like an old Viking game that they used to play where you throw, each team has like stakes and you have to throw like a baton across the field to try to knock their stakes over. Oh. It's uh, it's pretty fun. And that's neat. Maybe they'll play that. And then no, they just started beating each other to death with bats. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to be like, are you beating your cousins into a bloody pulp at your summer barbecues? At the barbecues? No, (laughs) we keep it low contact. That has some rules. Before 
we move on, we got to talk about the big scene in this section. Yes. Probably like the big scene of the movie, I would say. I would agree. It's the showcase piece. It's Amleth and Gudrun's reunion where we learn that maybe Orvindale and was a more complicated man than we originally thought. There's this thing where in the first act, when we meet him, we're kind of meeting him through this kid's eyes. Although the movie doesn't explicitly establish that this is of this kid's version of the history, but a lot of it does sort of take his point of view. And he's a good dad, but Gudrun's like, no, he's a shitty ass husband. I hated that fucker. And I actually begged his brother to kill him. And I was like, whoa, this is heavy stuff. And Amleth, understandably, is not happy to hear it. And then it gets even worse when his mom just straight up makes out with him. (laughs) She's not done. She goes from rocking his world emotionally by telling him that everything he believed about his family is a lie. And she wanted to have him dead. And then she's like, but you know what? If you're going to kill all these guys anyway, why don't you just fucking hook up with me and then you can be my king? And he's like, this is fucked up, lady. I hate my family now. I thought it was bad before, but it just got worse somehow. My family is the worst. But it raises an interesting question of like, how much of what she's saying do we believe? Or is she dealing with some Stockholm syndrome from Fjolnir? It's a really good question. And it's interesting because it's the only place in the movie where it introduces these questions, right? The rest of the movie is on the surface and everyone kind of says what they mean and everything is what it says it is. And all of a sudden we're like, whoa, mind fuck. Everything's not what we thought. Now we have to sort of pry these things apart. And these are like more complicated people than we thought. I kind of believed that she did. Like the part that she says that she was enslaved and she was impregnated against her will. And so she kind of resented her son, maybe not as much as she resented the man who raped her, but that part felt real. So I could see why she had that hate in her heart. But then she turned out to be a more fucked up person than we even knew because she was ready to throw the new people who she just told us she loved Fjolnir. And then she was ready to throw him over the rail and hook up with her son. She's got a thing for usurpers. She's kind of narrowly self-interested and willing to do whatever it takes to stay alive, I guess. She ends up being really weird and spooky and I loved it. Really good performance. Yeah. Really, really good work by Kidman. I mean, she comes alive. The movie kind of comes alive here. The movie is pretty dry through a lot of it. And then this scene happens and I'm like, holy shit, I love this. I'm finally feeling feelings two thirds of the way through this movie. Maybe what really struck me about this scene is like you said, that the movie's been kind of dry up to this point. Like these big events happen, but all the emotion is kind of sapped from it. And it all feels a little bit like the actors are doing good work, but the characters are almost just like numb to what's going on. And then this is the first time where we kind of get people like acting with a capital A. She is so fiery and amazing. This scene, even on her last line of the scene, she just kind of laughs him out of the room. And it's just like, holy shit. It's this great turn because he's this big hulking, scary guy for now an hour and a half. And now he's fucking chased out by this woman. And it's fantastic drama. Yeah. And he just leaves. He goes back to his old village. And that's the end of the movie. (laughs) You watched a different version. Mine ended Uh, with a little more bloodshed than yours. Tell me about it. Here's what I saw. So Fjolnir is shattered by his son Thorir's death, but Gudrun tells him, pull it together and deal with her pesky son, Amleth, who has gone into hiding in the hills. So Fjolnir threatens to kill Olga, which draws out Amleth, who gets captured, but that allows Olga to flee. After being brutally beaten by Fjolnir, Amleth is freed from his ropes by a flock of enchanted ravens, and he's able to rejoin Olga deep in the hills. Olga convinces Amleth that they should forget this place and sail off together to the Orkney Islands and live out a happy life. But aboard the ship bound for their new home, Amleth suddenly gets a vision of the twin babies that Olga carries in her womb. Amleth is convinced that his children will never be safe until Fjolnir is dead. So he jumps overboard, forcing Olga to sail away while he swims back to land. Entering Fjolnir's home, Amleth is viciously attacked by his mother Gudrun and his young half-brother Gunnar, and he's forced to kill them both. Fjolnir arrives just in time to find his family dead, and he challenges Amleth to a final showdown at the gates of hell, meaning on top of the nearby active volcano. 
there amidst the falling ash and the flowing lava, the two men duel to their mutual deaths, completing the cycle of revenge just as the prophecy foretold. This whole section is essentially like one extended fight scene, except for a quick scene of Amleth and all guy at sea. Uh, they also have a hot tub scene. There's a couple tender <laughs> moments in this final act. You're not supposed to be in a hot tub if you're pregnant. They didn't know that back then. I guess not. Yeah, a lot of fighting in this final act. If you thought it couldn't ramp up, it does. And the movie, for a short while, it gives you a hint that, oh, maybe your destiny is not set in stone and all prophecies don't have to come true. And then it's like, nope, just kidding. They do. Which I guess is like a staple of tragedies, but it doesn't feel as strong as I guess you would want to have in a Hollywood movie. The love affair kind of comes on late and it's really charming for 10 minutes and then it dissolves just as quickly as it came together. I, I feel like there needed to be a little more of Olga in the movie to kind of really drive home that connection and maybe make his decision a little harder for the audience too, because I never really doubted he was going to change course and go back to kill Fjall. I know what you although, mean. Although I wish he had, because it was like, it was really melancholy when he jumps out of the boat, like you said, it's another one of the scenes where you actually do start to kind of feel something for these characters because you just want him to go on and have a normal life with his family and raise his kids. I mean, those parts become relatable to us. I can picture them, two people who found each other in a tough place trying to have a life that's relatable. But like you just pointed out in the second act, the characters, as they go through these motions, even what's supposed to be angry, violent revenge by both Olga and Amleth, they're kind of cold. They're kind of emotionally detached. So when they finally hook up in this really emotive and warm way, it's hard to totally buy it. I wonder if that was another nod to like historical accuracy. Maybe there is just something about Norse people and Scandinavian people being a little more reserved. That's an interesting point. That could be. But it, it does take away from like how cinematic the movie feels. Yeah. You, know, you, want, you want your actors to emote more than a little bit. Yeah. They were pretty much ice cold killers and they were like, they found each other and it just happened to be convenient for both of them. She's like, you like to break people's bones and I break their minds and let's hang out for a while and help each other do that. There's no shortage of scenes that connect them and they do have an earlier scene where they get together in the forest and they make love and it's not like you didn't see the relationship coming you just didn't feel it coming it just doesn't right. feel that real you never got the sense that either was in love with the other like there wasn't those grand kind of proclamations there wasn't right. any these big emotions going on between them like you said it, it felt like a relationship of convenience god can you imagine just getting like asked to be their third at a bar be fucking terrifying I'd say yes. <laughs> They're a charismatic couple. Very attractive, but frightening, intimidating. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to tell them no, that's for sure. Right. What do you say? The implications. Yeah, your, skull, your skull smashed um, in. Or your mind broken. That's true. It's just as bad either way. We have a little blast zone tidbit for this section. Yes. Um, you dug this up. Thank you. I was like, this feels really familiar. In the end of the last act, we said that Amleth kills Thorir, his stepbrother, and Fjolnir is really broken up about it. So they have a big Viking funeral for Thorir. And it's creepy in a cool Eggers way because there's a beautiful young lady singing a nice song at the funeral and then they give her a drink and they stab her to death and leave her on the boat so she's kind of a human sacrifice i'm like where have i seen a viking human sacrifice before the 13th warrior yeah episode 51 i want to say i had 52 on my list here you're probably right i'm just guessing based on memory that's that's a good guess that was about a year ago back in february and apparently eggers and company when they were writing this pulled the details of this human sacrifice down to some of the chanting and poems that they used from the account of actual real-life Muslim historian Ahmed Ibn Fadlan, who was the hero of the 13th warrior. And so that's Antonio Banderas. Yeah. Banderas himself, this exact same scene was dramatized on screen twice in that movie and in this one. Good job. It was episode 52. And what is it about the month of February that makes us want to talk about Vikings? It's the coldness, I guess. Sacrificing maidens. Yeah. Good time. That is a fun tidbit. 13th warrior. I still like that movie more than I expected. 
connected to. Yeah, we got something out of it. Not a bad movie at all. If you liked The Northmen and want a more lighthearted Viking adventure, it's not lighthearted by any means, but it's more lighthearted than this. This movie is dark. It it's a low bar. It. Yeah. yeah. It leaves you kind of chilly emotionally and physically. You made a reference to supernatural things will happen in Eggers movies without much commentary on it. And there's a big one in this section, which how does how does Amleth get freed when he's when he's taken prisoner by Fjolnir? Oh, yeah. Some mystical ravens. They come and just uh, peck at his shackles till he's free. Quote the raven, you're free to go. Exactly. Get your shit and get out. Those are helpful ravens. And then I realized on repeat watches that his dad's nickname was the War Raven. And so even Fjolnir was like, oh, there's ravens around here. I wonder if they're omens of his father. Is that what he sounds like? Yeah. Like Clay Spang my, it's my Clay Spang impression. Oh, those ravens. What's up with all these ravens? It's really bugging me. Oh, no. Somebody leave out some bread. Yeah, things get mystical. The ravens set him free. And then he hops on a horse with a Valkyrie and rides back to the hot tub where Olga's waiting. And that's maybe the only supernatural thing that they offer a real world explanation for. She goes, no, actually, you were kind of dreaming there, buddy. I carried you up here. I'm not a damn Valkyrie. She's also not capable of carrying Alexander Skarsgård <laughs> anywhere. Sorry. That's I true. Know. So how did it really happen? It does leave <laughs> yeah. some questions. The truth is somewhere in the middle, I think. The ravens probably helped lift him up. Didn't they do that to Snow White? Are they ravens? No, those They're like probably, blue jays? They're bluebirds or something. Yes. <laughs> yeah. A little on the sweeter side than these dark ravens. Maybe in the book it was ravens because you know, the books were always scarier, darker. That's true. So let's talk about the big fight scene is obviously, there's not too much to say about it, but the scene where he has to kill Gunnar and- Gudrun? Yeah. Gunnar and Gudrun is, that's a pretty effective scene, I thought, because of the way it's staged. He's obviously, these are no match for him physically, but like- Yeah. He, he wouldn't have even tried to hurt them, but they try to get in his way and it becomes like a them or me thing for him. It's that great kind of action feels, again, Shakespearean in the terms of like tragedies that people get stabbed that you didn't mean to kill. And those kind of things are hard to pull off just physically, the staging of it, the way she jumps at him with the sword and he ends up putting his sword through her chest kind of accidentally. And she's like, well, thanks for putting it through my heart. I think she literally thanks him right there. I think that's because she just didn't want to suffer. And then the kid jumps on his back and he had already said, I think he tells Olga at one point, I'll adopt my little half-brother. I don't have anything against the guy. But he jumps out of the closet and starts stabbing him repeatedly in the back and he throws Well, him you've off killed his like his entire family. So it's yeah. going to be a hard sell. But <laughs> hard to win over the little brother at that point. So he's a goner too. And you know, both of them are like, you get that moment where the hero goes, oh, fuck, I just killed my mom and my brother. This sucks. Being in a tragedy sucks. Yeah. It does feel like a nod to the destructiveness of vengeance. And he goes on this quest to fulfill his destiny, but ends up literally murdering his entire family. Yeah. His mom, his half-brother, his uncle, his stepbrother, yeah. all, all his cousins, I guess. Yeah, all the cousins who were... You got to assume there were some other family members in that caravan, right? Totally. Yeah. Who's working for you as your men-at-arms? There's got to be some relatives in there. So he's a kinslayer many times over by the end of this movie. It's tragic. And you start to feel it. As we said, Skarsgård plays a lot of the movie cold, but in this end section, we start to feel some nice emotion from him. And then the big fight, we're talking about how the movie was not as cinematic all the time. The big fight is very cinematic. Yes. It literally happens on top of a volcano. The gates of hell is what they call it, right? Yeah. And you think, oh, maybe they're going to fight at the foot of a mountain. It's like, no, they're fighting in a lava field. It's literally blacked out with ash falling from the sky. They're jumping over little rivers and puddles of lava as they fight. And they're stripped down pretty much naked. I think they had little thongs on. Although I'm not sure if you were supposed to notice that. I think maybe you were supposed to believe that they were buck naked. I think Eggers wanted them to be naked, but there were some concerns with the MPAA. You didn't want to see their little junk flopping around. No. It's mostly in silhouette, though, so it's kind of tasteful in any case. It's basically the lightsaber duel on Mustafar from episode three, Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> At one point, Fjolnir says, it's over, Amleth. I have the high ground, but it's not over. No, they kill each other. It's basically mutually assured destruction at that point. But the movie lets us know that it's all okay for Amleth because he has another vision that his bride is safe, his kids are 
are going to grow up. His little daughter is going to become the Maiden King, which was something that was spoken early on by Willem Dafoe as a thing that would happen. Kind of a throwaway line. Not something you would have necessarily <laughs> honed in on until rewatches and you were like, okay, this feels important now. Exactly. It's one of those pieces of setup that's buried at the beginning where you have no way to make sense of what you're hearing. But I, let me just say, I love the Maiden King. My favorite character yes. in the whole movie. She doesn't say anything. It's a little girl. She's six years old or something. She's hanging on the Tree of Kings in this mystical vision. And she's the cutest thing. And she's also a badass. She's rocking a crown and a scepter and a sword. When they like close in on her and she's so noble and cool, it was so stirring. I was very sad that he had to sacrifice himself, but it was for this kick-ass little girl. I was okay with it. And you brought this up, but the fact that like his son is in the background of that vision, but then just kind of like fades away. Like, don't worry about him. Yeah. It's like, oh, twins. But the boy is kind of, he's kind of nobody. Let's check out the girls. He's fucking badass. He's a bit of a fail son. It happens. And that's the Northman, our first Eggers entry. Pretty exciting stuff. Again, as we talked about the movie, I kind of warmed up to it again a little bit. Still would say it's my least favorite Eggers. I still think The Witch is my favorite, though. I know you're a lighthouse guy. I connected better with The Lighthouse, but I do love The Witch. It's pretty incredible. Did you have any big closing thoughts on The Northman, or do you want to hear where some of these people involved went? following the movie. I didn't have a closing thought, but like I did the other week, I pulled a quote that I heard from Eggers actually in a really good New Yorker article. If you end up being a fan of this movie, go back and look for the deep dive they did with Eggers when this came out. And it relates to the success of the movie because as he talks about publicly, this was the first movie where he didn't have Final Cut. He had to take studio notes. He had to make edits to try to please audiences. And he basically says that editing this movie was the most painful experience of his life. And interesting, he says, frankly, I don't think I would do it again, even if it means never making a film this big again. And I'd like to make a film this big. I'd actually like to make one even bigger, but the lack of control is too hard on my person. A pretty honest insight from a director who was like, I tried to go Hollywood. I did the big budget film, had to have studio influence, and it's just not worth it. Even though I want to do it, I want to do more of it. I probably won't. That was on the fantasy interview, right? On the big picture? Was it? I think maybe they discussed that answer on the big picture in more depth, because I do remember him talking about that. Okay. And yeah, I think that's pretty telling. That was a lot of the chatter around this movie was like Kinegger's work within a studio with this kind of oversight. And I think the answer is kind of. It didn't ruin the film. He clearly had a bad time, but I think he still seems to say that he's proud of the movie. He didn't feel like it tainted the film for him. And when you watch it, you don't go, it's a mess because of that. It's just that it was never going to be what a Hollywood studio would really want. So it was just kind of a lot of painful back and forth without really ever making everybody happy. And it was never going to be what Robert Eggers wants 100% of the time. So it's a tough sell, especially now. You want to make a big budget epic that's not tied to any IP that doesn't really have... Nicole Kidman's the biggest star in this movie, but she's not really a box office draw anymore. I mean, like we keep saying that, but there's probably like five box office draws left. I know. Who is a box office draw? I don't know. This feels like something you would make as a series now, don't you think? You say that, but it was, this just came out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. Not last year when you would do something totally different. This year, you would make this as a series. <laughs> so Vikings, I guess, was the best example of like how to do this as a show, but it didn't probably scratch that itch for people who are looking for a more authentic Viking experience. But don't you think if HBO was the studio in charge of this and they were making it a limited series, all they would be telling Eggers is just, we need a few more naked shots and plenty of blood, would they really be like giving him notes on making the story more Hollywood? It's a good question. I feel like they have pulled back on the like excessive nudity and blood in recent years because people were starting to catch on. That was kind of their recipe. It fell out of favor. Yeah. But yeah, it does seem like the creators there are a little freer to indulge their weirder tendencies. I'd watch the shit out of a Robert Eggers series on HBO. Hopefully his Rasputin one materializes. I'd, I'd watch the fuck out of that. Exactly. I'm kind of heartened to hear that he's willing to tackle TV because he's such a movie nerd.
nerd that I was scared that he would not go into TV, but I think he would be fantastic. To your point, he probably was resistant, but it's where a lot of the money's going and it's where a lot of the freedom is for creators. Yeah, yeah. So Let's hope why that not? works out. But that's not the only thing he has on the docket. Like you mentioned, Nosferatu's coming up. Do you want to know who's playing Nosferatu? Please. The homie. He's going to get to work with him after all. Bill Skarsgård. Oh, neat. Great casting. Love that. Yes. What a perfect Nosferatu. That's going to be fucking cool as hell. Also, Lily Rose Depp is going to be in it. I don't know much of her work yet. I don't um, either. You know, I know she's Johnny Depp's daughter, obviously. I've seen her in stuff. I think, isn't she in Red Scare? She's been in something I've seen. Hold on. Okay. Oh, she was in Tusk. That's what I know her from. Oh, she was in The King. Oh, that's right. She was in The King. I loved The King and I can't picture her in it. We're going to go back. We're going to learn more about that, her. That was, that was our boy Joel, right? It's yeah. Falstaff. I loved him. Joel Edgerton. Oh, he wrote it too. Look at this guy. What can he do? He's a dude. Love Joel Edgerton. Yeah, so that's what he's got coming up. I don't know what order they're coming in. I think he said Nosferatu is definitely going to be his next movie, but that doesn't solve the question of right. is it coming out before or after Rasputin? Regardless of what order we get them in, I'll watch them both. I'm super excited. Totally. As far as Shone, the Icelandic poet, novelist, lyricist, screenwriter who's worked extensively with Bjork, he doesn't have anything upcoming on the docket as far as I could see, but he did also co-write Lamb, if you remember 2021's super weird Lamb. With I the, don't really know anything about that. It was like a family drama slash horror in the way that these movies often are yeah. about a little half lamb, half human girl who is raised by human parents, but then her lamb mom gets mad. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds fucked up and cool. I'm basing the synopsis on the trailer. I never actually saw it, but okay. I heard it wasn't very scary. It was more like emotional. Interesting. Watch the trailer. That's what I would, I would say to you. Watch the trailer for Lamb and see if it seems like something you'd be into. I will start there. So Skarsgård, this hasn't slowed him down at all. He is still making movies left and right and some flashy TV appearances. He's been on Succession a lot lately towards oh, the end cool. of season three, and he's going to be in season four based on the new trailers. So he plays like a musky Zuckerberg type. Oh, interesting. Handsomer, obviously. It's funny because I like him a lot. I like Anya Taylor-Joy a lot. This was not by any stretch my favorite performance from either of those two. It no. kind of was a notch down for both of them. Anya was kind of wasted in here, I think. It's just something didn't click. Skarsgård was like, of course he has to be Amleth and no one else could have been. It was like he was the genesis of the project. So it's like, it's not like you could cast someone else in that role, but it just didn't shine the way I, I would love to see from him. Is it crazy? Clay Bang was really good in this, but I almost wanted to see Skarsgård as Fjolnir with a little mm. more fire in his belly. He's maybe too young, but he's not that young. He's in his 40s. He's, I guess, doing what Hollywood male actors do is play up and down the range for a while. Um, yeah, he's 46, so he's not a young man. But if you saw this movie and you liked the scene with Skarsgård and Kidman and you want to see more of them kicking ass, please watch Big Little Lies if you haven't. And I'm speaking to you, John. I'm speaking to our entire audience. I know. I still haven't seen it. I really want to. Oh my God. The two of them are so good and he's so frightening in it and she's so compelling. It's a fantastic show. There's a lot of people in that in that show that I like, so I always meant to check it out. Top notch. Skarsgård's only six years younger than Ethan Hawke, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you think of them from like absolutely different generations. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird. He was also, he also had a big flashy TV appearance on Atlanta, if you caught him in that episode. Oh, I did not. I won't say more. It's pretty okay. weird. I fell back and I got to catch up on Atlanta. That, that's a quick one though it's six episodes that are okay. 22 minutes each um, and then he's in infinity pool which is out now and getting rave reviews but i find brandon cronenberg movies hard to watch because they lean really into the body horror oh really it's not my thing the family business how weird is that yeah i think his movies are harder to watch than his dad's uh, oh really damn that's scary. possessor fucked me up he clearly inherited the talent too okay but the pension for body horror unfortunately as well for me yeah i don't know if i can go there i don't think i can i think i'm out on infinity pool as much as i want to see it okay 
I might just have to read the Wikipedia synopsis. Yeah, that's what I do. So he's going to be in an upcoming movie called Eric LaRue. Okay. Directed by Michael Shannon. Oh, that's all I need to know. I'll be that's there. That's a guy. Imagine him looking at you from the other side of the camera, staring you down. You'd be intimidated as hell. Let me give you the synopsis. It sounds interesting. Janice, the mother of a high school murderer, prepares to visit her son in prison and prepares to meet a collection of bereaved local parents based on a play. It could okay. go anywhere. Okay. So the film wrapped in September of 2022. So it should be out mid this year, I would guess. I'll definitely check that out. And a movie called Lee he has in post-production right now, I think, or filming. So he's got stuff on the docket. Don't worry. You're going to be seeing more Scars Guard soon. Good. Nicole Kidman, probably her most iconic role as an actor ever was in the 2021 AMC Theaters ad that played before movies in the movie theater because oh. truly great work from her on that. I'll see. Maybe we could put it in the show notes. I need to see that because as you know, I haven't been in a theater in quite a while. I miss it. Came, it became a bit of a meme and uh, kind of did the rounds on the internet, but it's well worth watching. Kind of catch me up on these pop culture things that I miss. She's had a run of kind of bad luck with the movies lately, like being the Ricardos, the Goldfinch and Bombshell all were underperformers. But then she's popping up in the DC universe. She's in the Aquaman movies and she's going to be in right. the next one as well. She's fun in those too. I feel like she's like really going for it, like in her, the stage of her career. She's not afraid to ham it up in those roles, which is fun. Yeah. But she's kind of like one of our biggest TV stars now, I feel like between Big Little Lies, The Undoing, Top of the Lake and Nine Perfect Strangers, she's kind of been dominating TV dramas for the last five years or so. Good for her. She's such a good actor. I think back to when I first got exposed to her and I think it lasts to this day. I still have sort of a negative impression of her. I think I just heard her being talked up too much. So I'm like, who's that? I don't like her. And then I just, everything I see her and she just, you know, knocks my socks off. So yeah, shows you what I know. She's having a great, I don't know if she ever really went away. So you can't say Renaissance, but whatever no. work she's been doing in the past, like 10 years has been phenomenal. Just an amazing career. Clay Bang. Let's talk about him a little bit. The brother of Joe Bang from Logan Lucky. Weird that those two are related. I know their accents are so different, but he hasn't done, he hasn't done a ton of American work, but he was the star of the square, which we were talking about. I know you wanted to check out. We were talking about that. Yeah. Because uh, Triangle of Sadness. Triangle of Sadness was one of this year's big favorites of mine, directed by Ruben Ostland. And the square was the one I went to next to figure out what else did this guy do? I've watched half of the square and Clay Spang is awesome in the first half of the square. And that's all I can tell you so far. Excellent. Good to hear. He's also in the Burnt Orge Heresy, which I really wanted to see okay. and something called Lockdown. And he was on the affair, that Showtime show. Uh, oh, yeah. Start like Dominic West, Josh Jackson. Josh yes. Jackson. And he's in an upcoming Irish thriller called It Is In Us All. Okay. Which sounds interesting. So I'll check him out. I didn't do a summary for Enya because we've talked about her at length quite recently. Yeah. So it felt perfunctory, but that's what I got. How, how do you feel about this thing at the end? I know, like you said, you kind of warmed up almost in the vein of the way my rewatch has kind of warmed me up to the movie. If somebody came over and was like, I want to watch The Northman, I wouldn't try to talk them out of it. Okay. I'd be like, sure, let's throw it on. Let's check it out. See what you think. But I think it's going to be a long time for I am just like, you know what I want to watch? The Northman. And that That's just fair. hasn't been my experience with the other Eggers movies where they kind of worm their way into my brain and I can't stop thinking about them. And, yeah. And this one, when it was over, it was over in, in every way for me. Yeah, I see what it you made mean. It, it made it hard to think critically about it too, because it wasn't like I hated it or loved it. It was just kind of like, well, that was a movie and what am I supposed to say about it now? I think maybe I keep bringing it up because I feel like it started to worm its way into me after initially not being able to set any hooks. Now it's in my brain, especially now after we just talked through the whole thing again. I'm like, oh, am I going to go watch this again? I might. I didn't think <laughs> I, I liked so. it that much, but I seem to be drifting in that direction. I wish you Godspeed in your third watch of The <laughs> Northman in a week Thank and you. your fourth in like six months or whatever <laughs> it's been. I will I will probably sit this one out, but we've got another movie coming up in two weeks. Okay. Taking next week off because I'm in Denmark, as I mentioned. You're going to go become a Northman. That's and right. And when you get back, what are we going to watch? We are going to watch a little movie called War Dogs, which was kind of the bridge between Todd Phillips's comedy career and his 
self-serious Joker career. Okay. Um, this came out in between The Hangover Part 3 and Joker in 2016. Stars Miles Teller, Jonah Hill, and Anna de Armas. Bradley Cooper's in there. It's got a stacked cast. Yeah, that's a pretty good cast. It's a movie that I don't think is good, but I still, okay. like, it's very watchable. It doesn't really challenge you, but it's entertaining in the way these type of movies are. Action, like, crime thriller? It's okay. definitely doing a Scorsese impression, but not like the taxi driver one that he tried in Joker, more like the Wolf of Wall Street one. All right. High high energy? Yeah, high octane, kinetic editing, kind of fast paced, but not a ton of people to root for in it. <laughs> so it's got that same criticism of the Wolf of Wall Street, but it's a, it's a movie I'm kind of interested to look at from a more critical point of view, because like I said, I've watched it a few times as just like mindless background noise, because it's like a very easy movie to just put on and forget about. But now that I have to like sit down and analyze it, I'm really curious what I'm going to think about it. I'm coming into it cold, as I often do. I don't really know anything about it, so I'm going to try to be fair and not bring too much Joker baggage to it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the pod. We'd appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at BlastZonePod. Email us, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Questions, feedback, suggestions for movies to cover. We love hearing from you. We do. And we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.